So, we'll consider that all an invitation to us to come visit at some point. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've asked Mariana to give the talk she gave in Wittenberg because it was very powerful and very rich. Knowing Mariana, this will not be exactly the same talk. <laughs> I don't probably think you've not. ever given the same talk twice, probably. Probably not. <laughs> but, uh, but we're looking forward to hearing the Lord through you. And I've asked Bob to come and just pray for you. For, oh, wonderful. Thank for you. Time. Thank you so much. Heavenly Father, uh, we do turn our ears and hearts towards what you might want to bring through Mariana this morning. I bless her uh, first as a woman, for we know that nothing, not, no work that you do on this earth can come about or even be birthed except through women. I bless her as an Israeli who is coming from the land of Israel, carrying something of your heart for that land uh, into this meeting today. I bless her as a Jew and your special provision and calling on the Jewish people. And finally, I bless her as a follower of Yeshua who's carrying uh, the a special a stream of his love for us. So we uh, do gather our hearts to hear and receive what she might say this morning. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. This is a talk that I love giving. This is something that I believe the Lord has really placed on my heart. He gave me two messages and told me to take them to the nations. Uh, and for a while, that was just that, like the kingdom and the hidden faces, God fi hiding his face from Israel and the kingdom and what it means to the nations. So this is, uh, this is all about the kingdom and the nations and how I believe it's all manifesting now. Uh, I've heard from, um, from Sandy a little bit about what Gideon said on, um, on Wednesday. And it's amazing that the Lord is raising that awareness of our future unity, even, even in people who are not fully theologically equipped for that awareness yet. It's just amazing. It's God's grace. Um, when we're approaching this issue of Israel and the nations and the kingdom, uh, just very shortly, I want to clarify a couple of points. Uh, who are the nations in the scripture? Um, uh, Thomas, you mentioned yesterday, right, from Father Peter's teaching, which is very clear teaching in the Bible, that Israel is not one of the nations. There is also always Israel and the nations. Israel and the nations. It's not divided linguistically because the same word is used. Right now, we say nations are goy, goim, and Israel is Am, nation, people. But it's not like that in the scripture. Israel is called Goy many times. But it's in the context, it's always Israel here and the nations here. Uh, and I think in the way God created Israel and the nations to sort of face each other like this. They're not like one block, but they're like facing each other like this at the, at, at the biblical stage. Ab Abraham is blessed to be the father of many nations. Uh, and we know now already from the position of the New Testament teaching that it was both in physical and in the spiritual. In the physical, he's a father of pretty much all the Middle Eastern nations. On the, uh, in the spiritual, he's also the father of all those who believe. So oh, multiply nations by many, many times. Uh, nations are the children of Abraham. 
Um, and uh, sometimes people say, oh, I know I'm, I'm Israel because I'm a son of Abraham. Not correct. Uh, to be, uh, to be, Jew- I mean, I know I'm is- Israel is correct. I know I'm Jewish. You know, people. Many times, people came to me and said, "Oh, I have Jewish card. God gave me Jewish card. Therefore, I'm Jewish." And I usually tell them that they need for the rest of their organs to catch up because you know, <laughs> heart alone, and not not exactly sufficient. But uh, uh, being a son of Abraham does not make you Jewish. To be Jewish, you need to be son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, sons of Abraham are the nations oh, and the Jews, yes. So coming back to Beersheba is very uh, powerful also because of that is our common father home. Like we come to the place where, we, to the home of your father and my father together, I always, I love taking people from the nation's believers to, uh, to the well of Abraham. It's a very meaningful place. Uh, then, so nation... Who, who is Israel, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have many scriptures that we can see also on the nations. You can do your own little Bible study. And on Israel, in uh, uh, Genesis 18, 18, 19, God says, uh, should I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, one, singular, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. For I know him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they will keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord might bring Abraham what he has spoken to him, which is you're going to be a father of the people and the father of the peoples, the nations. <clears throat> we hear here, uh, if we do the Bible study on the election of Israel, it's very clear that that we have the blessing and the responsibility coming together as as uh, as a package deal. Uh, the heavy verses about the judgment beginning from the house of the Lord, Amos three one two. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. When uh, the teaching was moving through the church of like reading Israel every time uh, it says in the Bible, Israel reading it as a as the church, somehow nobody claimed those verses. You know, uh, they were sort of stayed unclaimed for Israel. <laughs> I think as human beings, we very often confuse election with exclusivity, and to explain that, I'm using an example of my team. Uh, I don't do the work we do in the streams of the desert. I don't do it alone. I have an amazing team. We also, most of us, are part of the same community. They're my people. They're my friends. We have Shabbat dinners almost every week. Uh, you know, we're in each other's lives. I love them deeply. I've known many of them for years and years. Actually, some of them I discipled when they were teenagers. Um, uh, there's hardly anything I wouldn't do for them. <laughs> it's like like this. They're my family. 
we go to, we do camps together uh, for, for teenagers. Our summer camp is probably the high point of the year for Streams in the Desert. We get those kids, we take them out into the desert, we create an environment for them. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, that the essence of pastoral ministry is creating the contingency for meeting with the divine. So that's what we do. We take them to the desert, we create the situation where they can meet with the divine, and we try to stay out of the way. It's hard work. You, all of you who've done, ever done youth work know, hard work. Um, it's very rewarding. It's lots of fun. We are half dead by the end of that week. And if you look at how the camp is going and you see me interacting, you would see, think that Mariana is there for the team because they are my main priority. I make sure they don't fight. I make sure they're okay. I make sure they sleep enough. I'm running after them with water. And like, have you eaten today? And like all of that. And you kind of see me fussing over my team. And you say, okay, Mariana cares for the team. Although I care for the team, my heart is for those two kids. They're the most important thing for me. They are the generation of redeemed Israel growing up in the land of Israel. They're probably the most important children on earth. They're probably the generation of the battle, training them and depositing them and make sure into them and making sure they're safe in the spirit is my utmost priority. I would lay my life down for that. They are my goal. To reach them, I need to make sure my team is all right. Because if they're all fighting and they're not functioning, I can't reach the kids. So I would invest everything I've got into those kids so that I can reach the kids, uh, into the team so that I could reach the kids. God wants the nations. He's after the nations from the beginning, from the book of Genesis. You could see that he is after the nations. He wants to be the king of the nations. He wants to rule over the furthest islands. He couldn't just go to the nations and say, hey, pagans, hey, idol worshipers, let's be friends. He had to bridge somehow through idol worship, through a lack of concept of one God Almighty, through misunderstandings in worship, through cruelty, all of that, immorality, he had to bridge over to be able to reach out so that he can be the king of the nations, but his heart is for the nations. So she chooses Israel as his team. And he says, okay, I'm going to invest into these people. I'm going to put them in front of the nations and go, look, this is, this is the falls, this is the, this is the highs, this is the lows. This is how it's supposed to go. This is how you do kingdom." Uh, this is how it's supposed to happen. And in some way, it was a failed experiment, um, but in some ways it wasn't. Um, we, we read through the servant songs of Isaiah, and we see the faithful servant that completely represents Israel. He's called Israel, my servant. God is talking about Yeshua, and he says, here's Israel, look at Israel, fulfilling his destiny, fulfilling his role, fulfilling his purpose, purchasing the nations for the kingdom. That's what he does. <laughs> Thank you very much. It always happens. I always cry, and I always forget the tissue. Uh, so we have this absolutely, completely victorious, fully obedient, 
perfect Israel in front of us. So it's like one of those paradoxes of faith again. We have total success and total failure. As a people on the natural level, were we the light to the nations? No, not really. Are we the light to the nations today? We're trying. And we can see that things are rising up, that there is a move. Um, didn't really work all that well. But out of that, you got your Savior, you got the Bible, you got the law and understanding how God relates to people, you got the understanding of his character, because everything we know about God's character was revealed to Israel. So everything you know about who he is, you know because he revealed himself to his team. He wants the nations. Uh, we go to one of my favorite subjects in the scripture, which is the mystery of God. Uh, and I like to think about the mystery of God according to Paul. It's one of his favorite expressions. Actually, Paul is very interesting for Bible studies because he is so amazingly consistent with his teachings. Like he has certain expressions that he uses again, again, and again, and again. They always mean the same thing. Uh, he has like a thought that you could follow through pretty much everything he writes. There's like, it just takes looking at it a little bit different, a little bit less passage by passage, and a little bit more concept by concept. And then you can see like how what a profound thinker he was. Actually, in my mind, when I think of Paul, I imagine him a little bit like Father Peter. I think they're having a good time together. <laughs> um, so Paul talks about mystery of God 21 times in the scripture, in his writings. 19 times it means exactly the same thing. And yet somehow in the body of Messiah, I've practically never heard it taught for what it actually is. When he talks about the mystery of God, hear what he says. And here I'm quoting just two of those passages. One is Colossians 1, 24 and down. And he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Messiah. I hope and pray I would never ever have to say that phrase. You know, I, I'm, I'm suffering tremendously, and I'm completing in my own body what a crucified man did not suffer. Like, uh, okay. So he's suffering a lot, but happily. He rejoices in it. He thinks it completely worth it. For the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So he says something that the prophets wrote about, something that we Jewish people knew from generations, kind of knew, but it was a mystery. We didn't really know what it's about. We just heard something of it. But now we can see it. It's revealed. And this is what's revealed. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Messiah in you, the hope of glory. When he says glory, when Paul talks about glory, it's also very consistent. It's a resurrection from the dead. That's what he, he talks. You can, you can check it. 
So whenever he talks about glory, it's the resurrection from the dead. So what he says is, I see Jewish Messiah in you Colossians, in you Gentiles, and to me it speaks of resurrection from the dead, of the kingdom coming. That was the mystery that prophets prophesied. We didn't know what it meant. It was just big mystery. But now I see it with my own eyes. And then he continues, and practically in every epistle that he wrote, except for like the instructional ones, he has mention of the mystery, like uh, Ephesians 3, 24, 27. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Yeshua, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you might understand my knowledge of the mystery of Messiah, which is in other ages was not made known to the sons of man, as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and the prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow, fellow heirs of the same body, and partakers of his promise in, in Messiah through the gospel, of which I became minister according to the gift of grace that God has given to me by effective working of his power. So God, in his power, the, the most effective thing he has done in Paul's life, he went boom, boom, revealed the mystery. And the mystery is that we, you and I, are fellow heirs in the same standing in the same kingdom. We go to a different place. We go to uh, Isaiah 42, uh, 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prisons, those who sit in the darkness from the prison house. It's fulfilled in Yeshua. He has made him a light to Israel and to the nations, equally to the people and to the nations. Uh, we all know famous verses of uh, Yeshua being the king of the nations and all that. Um, we go back to the to uh, New Testament, right? Uh, John ten fourteen fifteen. The Lord is sa- the Lord is saying about Himself. He says, "I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own." He's talking to people to a people group that are entirely Jewish, right? All of them are Jews, and He said, "You know me. I know you. You're my people." As Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So he's talking to the Jewish people. He's not saying to them, okay, I'm going to take you out, and you will join those Gentiles out there, because they are the majority. And that's the logical thing to do. We're joining the minority, then the majority. That's what happens. Uh, and you're going to be one flock out there, and I'm going to be your shepherd. He says, I'm going to take this ginormous mass of people, and I'm going to make them Israel. And I'm going to be one flock. You're going to be one flock, and I'm going to be your shepherd. Why do I say I'm going to make them Israel? Here I'm making it another step. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31. It's a very famous verse. We read it again and again and again. Only two years ago, after knowing it by heart and using it in Jewish evangelism regularly, I realized what it says. And the verse says, Behold, I'm making new covenant with the house 
of Israel and with the people of Judah. And he repeats it twice. And he says, this covenant is not like the old covenant. Because we Messianic Jews would like to say, okay, the new covenant is a commentary on the old covenant. So it's kind of, there is this beautiful continuity, and there is, but not in this way. Because the scripture clearly says that is not like that previous covenant, because the previous covenant your fathers have broken. So as a response to broken covenant, instead of rejection, punishment, let's leave this people, let's move on to some more obedient people. He says, no, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, people of Israel, people of Judah. And this covenant is going to be written in your heart. You're not going to learn from, from texts anymore. You're going to know it's going to be inside you. This is the nature of new covenant with Israel, with people of Judah. The first time I shared it with a, a, a Gentile friend as a test drive, she said to me, but there are other provisions made, made for Gentiles. And I was like, uh-uh, no. There are no other provisions made for Gentiles. The only provision, which is a ginormous provision that is made for Gentiles, is you're joining in. You get, you get engrafted, you're joining in, you're becoming Israel. Not in a replacement theology type of way, not in a way we replaced you, but in a way we joined you, we came through you, we got planted in, we have the same root that is feeding us, we are one now. So when I read the news from Israel, I don't think like, far away, I think my people, my people. My brothers, my sisters, when I think of the blindness of Israel, I don't go, so what? I can't see. I go, it hurts me. It's my people. This part of me, part of the kingdom, part of us is blind. So it just removes the, this issue of Christian arrogance, but it also should work the other way around. It should remove the issue of Jewish arrogance for me because I look at you, and if the Lord found you worthy, of being fellow heirs with me and, and the heirs of the promises and the kingdom and whatever is given to us from God, you can join in. If he finds you worthy, who am I to not? That it should flow both ways. But unfortunately, and fortunately, this, the wall of partition is destroyed on the cross. Uh, that is the victory of Yeshua. That is the victory of the cross. He, when he said, it is finished, the kingdom of Jew and Gentile, the one new man, was completely accomplished. Yesterday, I was mentioning it, that it's like one of those things that's completely co accomplished, but not fully yet. On one hand, Yeshua, when he said, it is finished, it was finished, it's done. One new man is there. New kingdom is coming. It's already here. But... For 2,000 years, the mystery was still a mystery. Because when I've started looking at those things and the Lord started revealing them to me, and I see how Paul is so shocked. It like blows his mind. And he goes, oh my gosh, look at that. Gentiles are with us. The Messiah is in them. Whoa, that's the mystery of God. He is blown away. And then for 2,000 years, not Jew, not Gentile, really, in mass. Like, I'm sure there were people who got it, but not in sort of a mass as a bodies. Uh, we don't get it. It's still a mystery. And you think, you know, okay, it's, it's not for the lack of godliness, and it's not for the lack of searching. I'm sure that very, very godly, holy people would wanted to know that, but it just wasn't revealed because it was still mystery. 
But now, like Paul, I can say, look, it was hidden from generations, but now in our time, it's being revealed. And here is a call that the Lord is presenting to us. And for now, while it's not yet still physically manifested, it's a prophetic call. Uh, It's to move into the area where we live something that is not yet here, as if it's here. And it's hard. And it's full of tension. And it's costly. And I, uh, years, a few years ago, we had a, a staff meeting. And in, in our staff meetings, we give a little, uh, we take turns and give a little devotion. And my coworker was giving a devotion, and he said, um, this is the way we live our life. With one hand, we're holding on to this earth. And with another hand, we're holding on to heaven. And as he's done it, he realized what it looks like, and he started weeping. And he was sitting there holding his arms like that, weeping. And he said, that's exactly that. Because our, we hate tension. As human beings, we hate tension. So we want to let go of one and become the completely sort of prophetic, flowing around like a border, air balloon, you know? Or, or we want to completely drop that one and just hold on to earth with everything we've got and become very practical and earthly and fleshly. And, and then it releases the tension. And we can go, oh, yeah, that's good. But then it's not prophetic. And, the prof- and prophetic is lived in tension. And actually, the more tension you feel, probably the more prophetically you're getting into God's heart. Because I think his heart is pulled to pieces between his mercy and his justice. It's pulled all the time between different things that for us now are such a sharp contradictions. And if we want to live in his heart, we live in painful tension. With this lovely invitation, <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to give you one more thought. Uh, yesterday I gave a whole talk on this topic, so, so sorry you've already heard it, but I just want to add it as a, bit, as a line. Um, how many of you know what replacement theology is? Okay, good. Okay, so I'm not explaining what replacement theology is. This is, we don't leave, leave today, praise the Lord, hallelujah, in replacement theology times. Mo- most of major church moves, movements rejected replacement theology, made apologies, uh, repented, moving on. Very few have not, but the majority have rejected it. Very seldom, although sometimes it's taught from the pulpit. As your father Thomas mentioned to me rightly, that it's more often sang in hymns, in old hymns, than taught. But we have remnants of this remainders of this replacement theology thinking in our foundations, the way we grew up. It's in our roots. It pops up in a very unexpected ways. And I think it's part of the work of the Spirit to purify us from that. And it's not something I can convince you, because I know uh, if, I, if you don't f- agree with me now, the tendency would be for me to, for you to try to explain to me why I'm wrong, and very possibly I am. But what I'm suggesting is for you to bring yourself before the Lord and ask him to reveal where is replacement theology still dwelling in your heart so that you can be purified because this kingdom is impossible. If my people will continue despising 
Gentiles and we despise Gentiles, the kingdom is impossible. And if your people will continue thinking replacement theology thinking, the kingdom is impossible. That's an obstacle which is in our hearts. And it manifests in different ways. But mainly, why is it such a huge problem? Because as I said, the character of God, the way we know who he is, was revealed to the Jewish people. So the moment we say God is done with the Jewish people, he moved on. He's not faithful, he's not righteous, he's changing his word, he's not sticking to his covenant, he is like all of those things. What does it mean for me? I sin 55 times a day, maybe 56. (laughs) What does it mean for me if he gets sick and tired of sinners and finds himself a holier person? What does it mean for my church movement? No hope. There's no hope left. So what's left is judgmentalism and legalism. Because we have to balance ourselves. We can't be rope workers for the rest of our lives. So we're sort of balancing ourselves with laws. And, and we pass harsh judgments on sinners because we know that God passes harsh judgments on sinners. And it, it manifests in our attitudes towards, first and foremost, the character of God. And then also, we subject ourselves to the consequences of the uh, two-sided blessing that was given to Abraham when he said, those who bless you will be blessed. And those who treat you lightly are... Uh, disregard you, le kalel is from the word kal, which means light, uh, which don't think you're, you're a major thing, they don't care for you very much, I will treat them as if they're insignificant and light and of no value. You don't want to be treated of like insignificant and of no value. It, it's just, it's very basic. Uh, and we, there are manifestations that I come across the, in the body of Messiah of deeply rooted replacement theology and anti-Semitism. And people who don't even know it's there, like yesterday I was, I was sharing a story of how I was at a uh, Christian Zionist church in Nashville, and I was the speaker. They invited me. They wanted Israelis there. The pastor's wife didn't know me, so uh, I was brought up to be introduced to her. And the person who brought me up said, this is Mariana Gall from Israel. And this woman said, oh, I thought I smelled money. And I said to her, what you just said is anti-Semitic. And she said, no, no, it's just a joke. Oh, oh, sweetie, I don't mean it like that. Well, you might not mean it like that in your head, but your heart meant it like that. Um, And there are things like that popping up in, in our language, in our thinking. There are more believers than you might think who actually believe in Jewish conspiracy. Uh, there's so, so many, there's, the Jewish labels are still in the air. They're still there. I, I was just talking to a dear, very prophetic, very strong, uh, godly friend of mine who was talking to me about Jewish Illuminati. Jewish Illuminati, the idea of Jewish Illuminati is from the protocols of the elders of Zion. That is an evil Jewish label falsification. It's not true. It's not real. People believe in it. There's just so many different things that are in, in our communities, in our hearts, in, our, in, in the way we think. The moment we think, oh, God, like, I don't know, Catholics sin, sinned, God is done with Catholics. We are in replacement theology. Uh, the moment we know of some um, major name who has fallen in sin, and in our heart we don't believe there is redemption. And when this person is brought back to the office of authority, we go, oh, how could you? 
We in replacement theology, we don't believe God stays faithful to people he's elected. So all of those things is the last little thought that I wanted, wanted to give to you. Uh, we, to be able to move in to this, this new union, I call it the fellowship of the mystery. It sounds very Lord of the Ringish, but I think Paul would have been happy with that definition. We're not talking majority. It's also the scripture is not talking majority. We're talking remnant, and I believe that the Lord is raising the remnant right now in front of our eyes, in the Gentile churches and in the Jewish community. And the remnant needs to move into this new world, where we're living something that is not yet here, as if it is completely accomplished. Uh, so that's what I wanted to present to, to, to present to you this morning. Thank you. Thank you.